This is an ABC podcast. Women in Iran set their headscarves on fire in fury. They are tired of the morality police beating them up and the Islamic Republic leaders who police their every move. 22-year-old Masa Amini died last week after being arrested in Tehran for unsuitable attire. The incident has sparked widespread protests across Iran, which have spread to over 50 cities and towns. The death last month of the 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, Masa Amini, while in the custody of the morality police, has sparked widespread protests across Iran. Street protests in Iran are not new. Since the 1990s, there has been an ever-increasing number of protests. What's a bit unusual about these protests are that they are being led by women and girls. But that too is not unique. Iranian women have been at the forefront of political protest and change in Iran since the beginning of the 20th century. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision. In this episode, women and politics in Iran. And we ask if the current wave of protests could lead to genuine political reform. Iran is not an Arab nation. Its population is predominantly Persian, with several other ethnic minorities thrown in the mix. Historically, women played an influential role in Persian society, including during the Persian Constitutional Revolution between 1905 and 1911, when the old order dominated by the monarchy was replaced by new institutions and a new social and political order, including the establishment of a parliament and a new constitution. It was a period of unprecedented debate in Iran and women and the women's movement were at the forefront of that debate. The women's movement in Iran traces its beginning even a little bit before the constitutional revolution. But 1905 was the main really time changer for them. That's where a great number of women came out into the street and protested for more rights. But the rights they wanted were basically the rights the men wanted, but they wanted also to have a share of them. Hale Esfandiari, I'm the director emerita and distinguished fellow of the Middle East program at the Wilson Center in Washington, DC. But when the constitution was drafted, women didn't get the right to vote or to be elected to parliament. Basically, they didn't get any right. They were again considered as second-class citizens. After that, over the year, till the beginning of the Pahlavi reign, women started being active, but not openly. The cleric from the beginning, the clergy, was against the participation of women. What changed was the beginning of the Pahlavi dynasty. The new constitution hadn't given women the vote, but it had temporarily limited the absolute power of the ruler. That was till 1921, when a military commander, Reza Khan, seized power crowned himself Reza Shah 
and promised to modernise Iran, including abolishing the veil. Reza Shah, the founder of the Pahlavi dynasty, believed that women as half of the population need to participate in the development of the state because he was going to modernize. He focused on education, he focused on employment, and he also focused on the veil. The veil was abolished in 1935, and it was enforced really very toughly for women because a lot of women didn't have the means to appear in public without the veil. But the government was very strict, both in Tehran and in the provinces with the abolishing of the veil. One of the most important steps he took, Reza Shah, was opening Tehran University to girls also. So when Tehran University was opened in 1936, 12 girls were admitted. And the age of marriage was also raised from 9 to 13 for girls. During World War II in 1941, Reza Shah was forced by the invading British to abdicate in favour of his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who remained Shah of Iran until 1979, supported by the United States and other Western allies. But just how progressive the new Shah was towards women's rights is debated. I personally think that the reign of the Shah when it comes to women's rights, was the golden years for Iranian women. Women got the right to vote and to be elected to parliament. So the political sphere was open to them. We had two women ministers on the eve of the revolution. On the eve of the revolution, women were undersecretaries, director generals, we had a woman ambassador. Women were participating in the development of the state. So as a friend of mine once told me, I felt no doors were closed to me. So that was what happened in the years before the revolution. Shaheen Navoy is an entomologist and political activist who was a student in Iran at the time of the Shah. And she has a very different view of the Shah's rule. During the period of the Shah, actually, the big problem for me as a student, as a young woman, was the censorship and was also the dictatorship in the society. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't read any book that I wanted. I couldn't read any magazine that I wanted. And it was completely under the control of the secret police of the Shah in Savak. In the time of 79, we did have also a ministry of women. And the Shah's sister was the head of this ministry. She was the one who decided for everything. Naturally, they did also some positive things, like charity things, on, and also something to helping the women in the health care and in the different part of the country, in rural country, and also in some of the big cities, especially. Under the Shah, 
women certainly had more freedom of dress, etc. But women still felt that their ability to participate, political participation, was stunted. My name is Pardis Madavi. I am the provost and executive vice president at the University of Montana. She is also the author of Passionate Uprisings, Iran's Sexual Revolution. Women's ability to fully engage in meaningful and gainful employment was also something that they felt that was challenged. And so there's actually been a very long history of women advocating for the role of women in Iran and for having freedom of movement in public, in private, in politics, in education, and in employment. And the different types of feminism that have grown out of these movements have really inspired the entire region in many ways. You've seen Islamic feminism, you've seen more secular feminism, you've seen multiple generations of feminists. And these these have actually laid the important groundwork for what we see on the streets of Iran today. Dissatisfaction with the Shah's brutal regime erupted into the streets in 1978. The sound of one million anti-Shah demonstrators on the streets of Tehran, the biggest public display of feeling in Iran since the present round of unrest began. And women were on the front line of these protests. The unthinkable has finally happened. The Shah of Iran has left. Just 12 hours ago, in freezing temperatures, the 59-year-old Shah of Iran walked aboard his Boeing jet and with tears streaming down his face, finally left the country he'd dominated for 37 years. There is a revolutionary fever that nothing can stop it. The slogan of that revolution was independence, freedom, Islamic Republic. Nobody had an idea what the Islamic Republic means. And the women who took part in marches in the millions, they expected that the government will not only provide them with a democracy, but also will show them an expansion in women's rights. And for a moment in 1979, there was an expansion of women's views and women's organisations, but it didn't last. After Revolution 1979, we did have over 40 different organizations, women organizations, all over the country they were active. But in 1980, they closed and they arrested and they actually killed a lot of active people, a lot of active people in different parts of the countries, different ethnic also. The repression came all over by the Khomeini. And in this period also, all possible activities for the women was banded. The thing we have to bear in mind is that the revolution itself brought together a coalition of different interests. And of course, after the Shah left and that unity began to fracture, people were competing for different visions of what the revolution meant. Hello, I'm Ali Ansari. I'm professor of Iranian history at the University of St Andrews. And very broadly speaking, and I I simplify here, obviously, you had one group that really wanted to emphasise the republic, the republican elements and a sort of a secular republic, effectively. And another group who said, no, no, this is all about an Islamic 
you know, revolution, a restoration of authentic Islamic values. These two sort of wings of the revolution were somewhat put in, say, sort of a forced arrangement in the Islamic Republic, because, you know, marrying these two concepts. And people for some time, including myself in the initial days, you know, thought that this hybrid system might work, you know, in a sense that there might be a system where they could be a compromise on both sides. But the truth of the matter is that the sort of Islamic authoritarian wing of the revolution was not interested in compromise. And throughout the first two decades of the Islamic Republic, there were very severe clashes between the two. And ultimately, the sort of more secular Republican elements lost out. You definitely had women who identified with the Islamic Marxists. You had women who were monarchists. You had women in, uh, on different sides. And at the same time, women's bodies were at the center of the platform under which the Islamist regime came to power. So the Ayatollah Khomeini, who led the Islamist regime to power during the revolution of 1979, he came to power under a platform of restoring moral order by really regulating women's bodies. Their critique really was a critique of an Iran that had become overly infatuated with the West or West-toxicated. And so their response was to bring back, quote-unquote, morality. And as a result, they created an entire arm of power called the morality police. And their entire jobs was focusing on, quote-unquote, upholding right and forbidding wrong. And in this instance, it meant regulating women's bodies from what they wore to how they how they walked, who they walked with, where they were in public, etc. In 1985, at the height of Iran's war with Iraq, the Islamic regime reintroduced the mandatory wearing of the hijab. The women were the first group when the hijab was imposed on them to go out on the street and protest. And also one of the first acts of the Islamic Republic, and that shocked even more women, was the suspension of the family protection law. So overnight, women lost their right to divorce. Divorce became again the unilateral prerogative of the man. The age of marriage was reduced for girls to nine. There have been contests throughout, actually, the life of the Islamic Republic to define what this exactly means. And, of course, the veiling of women is key to that. I mean, one of the first protests was actually women protesting about the mandatory, mandatory imposition of hijab. Nobody objected to the fact that if someone wanted to wear the veil, they could wear the veil. The fact was, should it be mandatory? Should people have the right to choose? And, of course, the state decided... Really, interestingly, you know, during the eight-year war with Iraq, where it could impose a certain sort of like emergency powers, the state decided that mandatory hijab was going to be it. And, and they often argued that, you know, to respect the martyrs in the war, we have to all be very austere, basically. And people bought into it. I mean, they tolerated it to a point because they thought, well, you know, there's been a pretty severe war. Now is not the time to quibble about these things. But I think it always rankled. And, you know, women in one way or another, have been pushing back against mandatory hijab really since the inception of the revolution. It's, 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 you know, there's been a sort of a constant negotiation with the regime. Negotiation is a sort of a, a moderate term in a sense because at times it hasn't been a negotiation, but they've sort of been in this sort of toing and froing with them. But of course, it's part of a broader, it's part of a broader sort of struggle in a sense for people to say that, you know, we want our rights. You know, what was the point of the revolution? The point of the revolution was to establish 
a just political system. All revolutions tend to be fairly idealistic in their ambitions. They all tend to fall short in one way or another. This has been a continuous struggle, and the women's movement has been an integral part of it, but it is part of a whole. With the end of the Iran-Iraq war in 1988, things slowly began to change both socially and politically in Iran. The Islamist regime, when they came to power in 1979 and into the 80s, They enacted pronatalist policies where they encouraged families to have as many children as possible. This was partly because they were fighting the Iran-Iraq war and they needed more bodies, but also partly because this was an effort to produce a, a population that might be faithful to their ways and their approaches. So they engaged in pronatalist policies where families were encouraged to have as many children as possible. And what that looked like was any family that had more than two children got a tax break. Any family that had five children or more got a free plot of land. And so you had, you know, a baby boom, essentially. So you had a large number of folks born, you know, they say the children of the revolution between 1979, 1995. As these children of the revolution were coming of age in the late 1990s and early 2000s, They were coming of age at a time when the rhetoric of the Islamic Republic that was about austerity and morality, it didn't necessarily resonate with them. And so they began to question this and they began to challenge the regime. They also noticed that this was a regime that was so overly focused on their bodies and they were frustrated by that. They were frustrated by a regime that spent more time policing what women wore than in attempting to figure out a solution to the unemployment problem or in attempting to solve traffic flow issues or pollution. And so they said, okay, well, this is a regime that you know is so focused on our bodies and has come to power under a fabric of morality. Well, let's speak back to that regime with that same language and use our bodies to speak back to a regime with which they did not agree. And so they did this by sliding the headscarf back, wearing red lipstick, wearing red nail polish. Annabelle, while you and I might think, is that really an act of resistance? Absolutely it is, right? Because they are speaking out. They could get punished for these behaviors and they're pushing back on the regime and they're doing it in an organized fashion. And speaking to the regime in the same language, in the cues that the regime themselves take. That was sort of the start of this movement that I was studying, Iran's sexual revolution. That was the beginning of that sexual revolution. So in the 1990s, once the war is over, politics comes back to life. In the two presidencies of of Rafsanjani and Khatami in particular, you see a huge attempt to push back against the more authoritarian bent of, you know, the Islamic revolutionaries. And in many ways, Khatami's election in 1997, beg your pardon, was a, a clear popular response to these harsher Islamic measures. But of course, the hardliners around the supreme leader basically did everything to undermine that reform movement. And people then lost faith. I mean, people sort of said, if we can't reform the system from within, what choice do we have? And that has led us really in the noughties, effectively, with the presidency of Ahmadinejad from 2005, really from 2009, the Green Movement, if anyone, you know, people remember that, you know, this mass, mass protest that emerged then. You can see basically people almost in some ways reluctantly coming to the conclusion, because I don't think anyone in Iran is in a rush to have another revolution. I mean, you know, if you if you conclude that the only solution you have is a revolution, it's pretty desperate times. I mean, it's 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 like the Iranians in Iran certainly have tried every other method 
every other method of getting some sort of political change, even modest, slow, you know, incremental, but it just it it just hasn't worked. And, uh, you know, it's left people. And what's striking this time around is the young. I mean, the, the, these people who are protesting are very young, which shows that state indoctrination has failed completely. It's completely crashed and burned. From the late 90s, there have been a series of ever-growing protests across Iran. In 1999, a pro-democracy protest spearheaded by students at Tehran University. In 2009, the Green Movement, arising out of a disputed presidential election. And in 2017-2018, protests targeting the government's economic failures. In western Iran, demonstrators take on a police water cannon. Just one of the videos posted online of the biggest anti-government protests in Iran in nearly a decade. Suddenly, these protests kind of got out of hand. It was a controlled burn that turned into a wildfire. So all of a sudden, we've got protests in cities and towns and provinces we haven't heard from. In public comments, President Hassan Rouhani said Iranians had the right to criticize the government, but not to turn to violence. In last year's election, he promised the economic benefits from the deal to limit Iran's nuclear program would soon flow. They haven't yet for most. Inflation eats away at earnings. Youth unemployment is nearly 30 percent. And Iranian women have always been at the forefront of these protests. You know, I think what we've seen is women's rights as human rights have always been at the center. You saw this very loudly even in 2009. That was really those protests. The Green Movement was initially around the protesters were coming out saying the election had been fraudulent. The re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, a conservative president, they were calling for a recount. They were saying that his re-election was fraudulent. And so they took to the streets saying, not my president. Now, who was at the forefront of those protests? Certainly women. Who was the face of some of the protests? Certainly women. And again, that's because women had the most at stake. Under a conservative regime, it was women who suffered the most at the hands of a morality police that was really scrutinizing their bodies and their behaviors. And so you saw women women at the forefront. And women's issues absolutely were at the forefront. They were a part of a larger critique of the government as being a regime that did not respect women's bodies, that did not respect women's rights as human rights. As the protests grew, however, so if you think about 1999, early 2000s, even 2009, those were protests that were pushing against the regime. They were starting to question the regime's legitimacy and bringing to the center these issues around bodies and human rights. As the protests grew larger and it spread to different socioeconomic classes, it spread to urban and rural areas alike, the legitimacy of the regime was called into question not only based on morality and bodies, but also on things like economics. So what we saw in 2017-18, yes, they were protests around the political situation, but a lot of the protests were motivated by a frustration of the Iranian people who had been living under sanctions, living under a heavy weight of sanctions for so many years. And they were frustrated with a regime that they felt was not representing them as the Iranian people and didn't necessarily care for them, given the rising prices of oil, of gas, of food. People were literally in the streets saying, we are starving. 
We are starving and this regime does not respect us and our human rights. Mehsa, I mean, the story was like a spark. It just got bigger. She was a 22 years old young woman. She was arrested by uh, morality police in the street. And then she died in custody. Women's issues, like I said, was sort of the starting point for many, but it's really much larger now. It's about human rights. It's about human dignity. It's also about issues around equity and issues around economics, as you mentioned. People have been living under the pain of sanctions. Unemployment has risen to astronomical levels. It's over 45% unemployment. Traffic is only getting worse. Pollution is only getting worse. And people are now saying, enough is enough. What about the Iranian people? When is our government going to care for us and our well-being? It's definitely grown to a much larger issue. Iran's also in a situation where the supreme leader, which is only the second supreme leader since the revolution, is now quite old and said not to be very well. Could that be a catalyst for change, do you think, once and when he actually dies? I think there's certainly a confluence of things happening right now, which is another, perhaps another component of why the protests now are different and gaining so much momentum. I think the fact that Khamenei is both getting older and is said to be in poor health is a factor and a successor has not been publicly named. So that's a factor. I think also this heavy toll of sanctions combined with the larger, you know, sociopolitical climate globally. As, as we talked about earlier, this is a highly educated population and multiple generations now. I mean, one of the things that also inspires me is the fact that you see schoolgirls protesting. And, and so not only do you have that generation born, you know, between the revolution and the 90s, that earlier, the children of the revolution who began the protests in the late 90s, you also have another generation that has been born into resistance. So not just a generation born into revolution, but a generation born into resistance. And they are coming out there and they are bold and they are courageous. And so, as I mentioned, it's a confluence of factors that's perhaps creating a perfect storm. So can this perfect storm lead to real change in Iran? Or will these protests be stamped out by the Islamic security forces? I think people make the mistake of always fighting the last revolution. And I think the regime does that too. So they constantly model political change on Iran, on what happened in 78-79. But 78-79 is but one of a number of political movements that have shaken Iran over the last 100, 150 years. And they don't always follow the same pattern. Political movements of this nature are by their very nature unpredictable. So I think we need to go forward with a very open mind about what might happen in that sense. It's, it's, it's entirely possible that you'll see a repeat of what happened two, three years ago, things will subside. But it's also possible that there will come a time when someone will pull on that final thread and the thing will start to unravel. And that's what I think also we need to just be aware of and, and keep our eyes on. What we are seeing this time around is increasing momentum. And we certainly know this has been brewing for more than two decades, right? Arguably, some might say that discontent with the Islamist regime has been brewing since the revolution of 1979 and since the installment of the morality police and the Revolutionary Guard. So what we do know is that, you know, disenchantment has been growing. 
dissatisfaction and disillusion has led to a large number of street movements and protests. We now have multiple generations of it, and uh, the groundswell is growing. So I think it will be difficult to predict what exactly will happen next. What I, what I do hear, though, from certainly Iranians in Iran and around the world is folks are saying, you know, some, somehow this time feels different. Padis Madavi, author of Passionate Uprisings. Thanks to my other guests, Ali Ansari, Professor of Iranian History at the University of St Andrews, Harley Esvanyare from the Middle East Program at the Wilson Centre in Washington, and Shaheen Navoyi, entomologist and political activist. The sound engineer is Wayne Nguyen. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.